Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. If you're using the Black Bibles around you, Matthew chapter 9, the section we'll be looking at will be on page 814. And as is our custom, we're going to continue working through a section of the Bible that we've chosen. And for this season, it's the Gospel of Matthew. And whether it's the Sunday after Thanksgiving and the weeks leading up to Christmas, we'll still just keep working through that section of Scripture as we are now. Throughout our series of studying uh, an ancient biography of Jesus, if you want to call it that, Matthew's Gospel, we're looking primarily at Jesus. Today I'd like us to look at the bride of Jesus in our focus as we look at Jesus, I think we're going to better understand who the church is today. And so I wonder if you've ever noticed, for those of you that have gone to church for some time, typically around this season of the year, church attendance goes up, which is an interesting thing. Why? Tradition, I'm assuming. But why, why go to church at Christmas and Easter? Why go to church at all? Why are you here today? How many of us, if we're honest, we view church like an event, something to go to, an event to attend, and then when it ends, we can discuss how good it was or how good it wasn't, were we entertained, were our ears tickled, did the musicians play well, did the child care workers and greeters and everybody do their part to make it just a wonderful event? Now, Obviously, those are things we want to try and strive to do in excellence. But is that primarily what the church is as we read the Bible? As we look at Jesus and look at who he is and see, if that's who Jesus is, then what does that mean the church must be? For example, the Bible says that Jesus is a king. Therefore, we must be a colony, a citizenship, or an embassy as our church name has all around you. If he's a king, then that must mean we're ambassadors. Or if he's the good shepherd, then we must be the sheep. And so what we'll see today is that Jesus is the doctor, therefore we must be the hospital. And if Jesus is the groom, then we must be his bride. Let's see that in our two stories in Matthew chapter 9. Starting in Matthew 9 verse 9. I'm going to read the first story, Jesus calling, who tradition speaks, although there can't be 100% certainty, tradition says that the one writing this whole book, Matthew, he's going to talk about himself for the first time here in Matthew 9, 9 through 13. Follow along as I read. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In this first story, I want us to see that the church is more like a hospital than it is 
like a waiting room for a job interview. The church is much more like a hospital than in the waiting room of a job interview. Keep that thought in your mind. Look at the first verse, verse 9. Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man called Matthew. We also know from the other Gospels that this man has another name, and this is common in the first century. His name's Levi in some of the other Gospels. But Matthew, also called Levi, is sitting at a tax booth because he is a tax collector. You should know that where he's sitting, based on verse 1, earlier in chapter 9, you saw that in getting into the boat, they crossed over and came to Jesus' own city, meaning the area of Capernaum where he was staying at that time. And so they passed on from there, meaning Capernaum. So they're just outside of Capernaum, which is outside of the Sea of Galilee. And there he was collecting taxes, probably for most of the fishermen and any of the commerce that would have come in off of that body of water. It would have been a strategic point. If you're looking on the map and you see where the Sea of Galilee is and how it passes from east to west from those that are heading, sure enough, it would be that Matthew would have been a well-known character for all the comers and goers. Tax collectors, as some of you would have heard before, they invented taxes on anything that they wanted. There was a certain amount that they needed to give to the Roman government up in Rome, but since they're not in Rome, they had the freedom to kind of tax whatever to pocket the rest themselves. They were essentially extortionists and cheating the poor even more of their money than what the already cruel taxes put on them. I've read some commentators and people that have explained that taxes at times would have taken about 70 to 80% of your income. Some of you don't like taxes now, but now you're much more thankful about your taxes here in the United States. These tax collectors would tax axles and wheels, the more wheels you had. So if you had a two-wheeled cart, it'd be cheaper to transport than a four-wheeled cart. It cost you more money to cross on certain roads if they had a bridge or a certain highway tax. Think of the way we've got toll roads all around here in Chicago. Not my favorite roads, I don't know about you. They'd tax your ships, your boat, the dock, whatever fish you caught. They'd even open up some of the packages that you were carrying, and they had the right to open private letters to make sure that there wasn't any business going on, and if there was, they'd tax that as well. In other words, there was an unlimited abuse on these taxes. They were oppressive. They were unjust. One scholar explains there were two kinds of tax collectors in this system. The one who would sit on the roads at these booths, and then the ones that would be behind the scenes. The ones that were in the booths would have been seen as the worst of the worst because they were in your face. They were the ones that the people had to deal with. So in this case, the man we're reading about, Matthew, he's that kind, the worst of the two kinds of tax collectors. If you were to read in the Jewish rule book, which is called the Mishnah, you'd find that these tax collectors were so despised by Jewish people that they would be in the same category as thieves and robbers, that both conservative and the most liberal Jewish priests would say, it's okay to tell them straight-up lies. If they asked how much money you had, and you were to say, well, I only have this much, and it was a lie, priests in the Jewish community said, that's okay. Those guys are crooks anyway. And any time that you were to have a tax collector in your presence, you'd be considered unclean, especially if you had them in your home or ate a meal with them. All of that's helpful background because in verse 9 we see that Jesus says to this man, this tax collector, and get all of the animosity that a person that's in a Jewish context would have been having when they heard this sort of story. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And he, being Matthew, rose and followed him. The word rose here is the same word that we saw earlier when the man who was crippled and couldn't walk was told by Jesus to arise, to rise up. It's the word not used for just getting up. It's the word for resurrection. 
Matthew is, I think, linking the story of the man who was paralyzed with his own story. He was paralyzed. He was dead. He needed to be resurrected from his life of sin and tax collecting. So it is, Jesus calls this man, and when someone is called by Jesus, resurrection happens when they get up and they follow him. Matthew is telling us his testimony, and when you read it, you notice that it's really just verse 9, and the rest is all about Jesus. Which is interesting, isn't it? That when he's writing about himself, he gives very little details, but gives a lot more details about Jesus. In fact, the whole book he's writing is about Jesus. I'm sure this should be a little lesson for all of us when we're talking about our own stories. If you read Luke or Matthew's account of this same story, you find all kinds of other details. Details that might even make Matthew look kind of impressive. The fact that he quickly got up. Right away he followed Jesus. But you don't see any of that in Matthew's account. Could it be because he knows that the The real hero to his story is not himself. It wasn't that he picked himself up by his bootstraps. It was that he knew that it was Jesus that is the hero and the main star of his story. Friends, if you and I are talking to people about Jesus and telling them that we have been transformed by an amazing man, a man who's healed and transformed us, how well do you do at giving Jesus the limelight, giving all of the praise Or do you make much of yourselves? You know, on a regular basis, downstairs before church, we gather and we regularly ask people to share their stories. I'm not trying to look back and condemn anybody if you've not done a good job as other people, but I'm just trying to say for all of us, hey, let's make a habit that when we tell our stories, Jesus is seen as great. And we're seen as the losers that we are just like Matthew. And if you don't think you're a loser, then you're in for a surprise. Jesus is quite offensive to our modern sensibilities. He often says things just plain, that we're sick, we're sinners. And we're going to see that quite clearly in this text, if you've not already caught on to that. But is that the way you feel about your testimony? So many of you grew up in the church, and the testimonies we've heard week after week is that, well, I didn't have a testimony like so-and-so that came to faith when they were in their 30s or 40s, and they were addicted to some sort of drugs or alcohol, and then powerfully, wow, they came to faith in Jesus, and their whole life is transformed. So many of us, we have testimonies of I grew up in a Christian home. I heard the gospel at an early young age, and I believed in the gospel. Do you still see your testimony as a resurrection, as bringing death to life? And it's drastic, it's dramatic, it's not just, oh yeah, that was a boring testimony. I want to encourage all of you that have struggled to think about your stories in that way to stop. Stop thinking about your stories those way. Anybody that comes to faith in Jesus, it's a dramatic miracle of a change of heart. Your heart was not born with the predisposition to love God and the things of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one, and we aren't running after God. He's running after us. So whether you were five years old or you were 50 years old, that is our story. Jesus is the hero that comes and rescues sinners like you and like me. So I hope and pray that all of you will see that even if you were saved at an early age, that you'd be continually dumbfounded by the idea that you were born into a Christian home when there are seven, some billion people that live on the world, and you could have been born to any other place in any other part of the planet, and you would have never known about the gospel the way you have so often throughout your life. See it as life. See it as resurrection. So one verse all about Matthew. The rest is about Jesus. Let's read those now. Verses 10 through 13. And Jesus reclined at a table in the house, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. 
When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call righteous, but sinners. So we already know how bad tax collectors are, and then we have this further description of tax collectors and sinners are all eating at a table, what is Matthew's home, where he's living, and they're are with Jesus and his disciples. Sinners is basically the little shorthand for the worst people of the day. So tax collectors is one category, sinners is the other category. So if you want to just modernize it real quick, think of drug dealers, people who run abortion clinics, palm readers or witch doctors, rapists, somebody who's abused a woman or children. Think of your Harry Weinstein stories. Maybe think of a man who's been divorced five different times because he's repeatedly committed domestic violence. I mean, fill in the category of whoever you could think of, like, these people are bad and evil and crooked, and that's the people that Jesus is eating with around this table. Jesus is eating with them, and if you really understood the context of those kind of people, the tax collectors and the sinners, you would probably have the same question the Pharisees do. Why is Jesus eating with them? There's times when I read this story, I'm like, you know, I kind of wonder in the same thing the Pharisees are. Like, what is Jesus doing around these kind of people? And so it should be no wonder that they're asking, why? Does it mean that Jesus is approving of their behavior? Does it mean that he wants to be an affirming church and just say, hey, anybody that wants to come, you just stay just as you are, and I have no plans to turn your sins away, and you just stay just as you are. I'm, I'm, I'm inclusive. I'm, I'm welcoming in that way. Well, there is a sense to which he's inclusive, and there's a sense to which he's welcoming. But as you can see quite clearly, he sees himself as a doctor. Not as somebody who says, hey, all of you are great just as you are. No, you're sick as you are, and you need to come, and I'm your doctor that's going to heal you. He's not tolerant of sin. And so many times people read these stories and say, oh, see, Jesus is welcome of these people, so we should be affirming of anybody who's in their sin. I mean, that's a misreading of this story altogether. Read the next verse. Read verse 12 and 13. After he sits down and eats with them, the conversation then turns, why would you hang out with these people? Because I'm healing them. I'm cleansing them. I'm turning them away from their sin and toward me. Jesus is calling sick sinners. And that's why he says, look, I did not come for the righteous. I came for sinners. And that's why the sermon is titled, Jesus is a sin specialist. You know what I mean by that? Not that he personally specializes in sinning. Hopefully you didn't read it that way. But rather that Jesus is a specialist in terms of a doctor. You all maybe have primary care doctors, they're a generalist, and they take care of a bunch of different things, and then they're stumped on something, and they need to refer you to a specialist. Maybe you have a foot and ankle doctor that needs to help with your ankle problem. Maybe you have a heart problem, and you need to see a heart doctor. My wife, recently this last year, she had to see a neurosurgeon for a particular back surgery that was different than all the other back surgeries that are going on, and it was finally when we saw that doctor, after seeing loads and loads of different doctors, and after doing every kind of treatment plan that we could think of, that we saw this specialist, and we're like, yes, we will let you operate on her back. Before that, it was like, no, you're not specialist enough. Do you get what I'm saying? That's the kind of specialist that I'm talking about when I say he's a sin specialist, like a back specialist or a neurosurgeon specialist. Jesus is a sin specialist. The kind of doctor he is is he deals with the worst of sinners in the hardest of cases. He's that kind of doctor. There's no sickness that he looks at and says, eh, sorry, no room for you on my schedule. He doesn't look at sinners and say, sorry, there's nothing we can do. We've tried all of our treatment options. He's the kind of doctor that he looks at every single sinner, and as they're coming to him, as he's going to them, whichever way you want to look at it, 
Jesus is a healer, a specialist of the worst kind of sin. Or as J.C. Ryle said, no sin-sick soul is too far gone for Jesus. It is his glory to heal and restore life to the most desperate of cases. For it is his unfailing skill for unwearied tenderness, for long experience of man's spiritual ailments. The great physician of souls stands alone. There is none like him. That's what I mean. He's a sin specialist. There's none like him who deals with sin in the way that Jesus does, who embraces people who are sinners, who are hurting and broken. So friend, ask yourself this question. If that's who Jesus is, a specialist who deals especially with really bad sinners, why is it that when you and I sin so often, especially if you're honest at this moment, why is it that we turn away from church? Why is it that we skip church? That we feel ashamed or so broken, it's like, oh, I, I don't want to go to church today because I had such a bad weekend and I failed God again. Why is it that we don't go to him in prayer, but instead neglect disciplines of Bible study and prayer? Friend, have you ever noticed this tendency in your life? That when your sin is the worst and the most disgusting, that oftentimes you're believing the lie that Jesus is disappointed in you instead of Jesus wanting to heal you in that moment, in those darkest of days? It's like having a heart attack and going the opposite direction of the hospital. Why? Why would you do that? How many of you have heart attacks or see someone that has a heart attack and think, yeah, let's go in the opposite direction from the hospital and the doctors who can heal me? The church is the place to welcome sinners so that they can see the doctor who can heal them. That's what the church is like. Jesus invites people like this, sinners. And oftentimes, because there's so many sick people in the waiting room of the church, as we're coming to see Jesus, we don't get along with each other. Have you ever noticed that? And then we act surprised as if we were all supposed to have the exact same beliefs on every little detail of everything. I was listening to a talk just this weekend, and it was a lady giving a talk to a bunch of other moms, and she was talking about all the different particular convictions that moms have about whether or not you're going to have this kind of diet versus that kind of diet, or whether you're going to have this kind of vaccinations or not that kind of vaccinations. Are you, are you going to get, when you're having a baby, you're going to get the drugs or, or no drugs? You're going to go all natural. Do you all know what I'm saying? That moms deal with all kinds of things like this? It's like, that's the church. We're a bunch of people that we have all these issues and differing views and opinions, and then we offend each other when we don't agree. Like, oh, wait, you're going to eat that, or you're going to do this, or whatever. And it's Jesus who looks at these broken people and he wants them. The question is, have you wrapped your mind around viewing the church this way or are you still trying to think that this is a group full of the righteous, full of people that have got it all together? How many of you are struggling right now with discontentment because you're comparing yourself with somebody else in this room? Think about that for a moment. We don't have it all together. I'm your pastor. I've heard almost all of you share at some point or another, so I can tell all of you very plainly and loudly and clearly, we're messed up people. And I, I will begin by saying, your pastor is not there. I have not arrived. Don't look at me and start comparing your husband or your wife to someone else in this church. Be like, why can't you be more like that? Friends, that should not be the sort of talk that comes out of our mouths. Those people, even though you can't see it, they're struggling just like you are. And therefore, all the more reason why we should be in communities of people that are open and free to share what's really going on. 
and know that those people should not be surprised because when they're honest with themselves, they know, yeah, I'm really sick too. The more and more we can become that kind of community, the more and more I think we can become the kind of church that Jesus made us to be. And so I don't know if you think this way, but it helped me recently to hear in a message someone say, Jesus will always let somebody in that will make you think, oh, Jesus, not them. Think about it this way. Jesus values the poor. But in this story right here that I just read, he's asking a tax collector who steals from the poor to be part of his followers. Jesus teaches to love your enemies and nonviolent ways to resolve conflict. But he asks one of his 12 disciples to follow him, who is a murdering zealot who wants to go and deal with the conflict of the Roman government with swords. And, and, and violence. You, you got to imagine that there's conflict going on just in the 12 disciples, opposing worldviews. Jesus cared for oppressed people, but in chapter 8 of Matthew's gospel, we heard about a Roman soldier who had been considered an oppressor of the Jewish people. And Jesus says, out of all the people he's ever seen, this Roman soldier has the greatest faith out of every Jew he's ever seen. No matter where you stand, whether you're closed-minded or open-minded, my guess is that you will run into people that come into the church and you'll be like, oh, not them. Really? No, Jesus wants them. The question is, can you handle that? For a lot of people, they can't, and that's why they don't come to church anymore. Or they go find another church and then realize, oh, that church has those kind of people too. And then they hop around from church to church. Jesus wants every kind of person, people from the right side or the left, the Democrats and the Republicans, the oppressed and the oppressor, men and women, gay and straight, Calvinists, Arminians, Catholics and Baptists. Go on down the list. Those are all the kind of sick people that Jesus wants in his church. So the church is a whole lot more like a hospital than it is a job interview. Do you know what I mean by that? A job interview? If you're in a waiting room and you've got all the other people waiting for that job, what are you doing? You're sizing each other up. You're comparing and contrasting. Am I going to get the job? Well, that person doesn't look very qualified. I'm feeling good. Oh, man, that person's well-dressed. They're looking good. They're sharp. They came out of that door after the interview, and they're really, like, got their, their shoulders back. and they're. I mean, that's what people do at job interviews. But when you're in the waiting room of a hospital, you're like, oh, I feel bad for them, too. Yeah, you got it, too? Yeah. Everybody has empathy, and they're sick. See, these Pharisees, the whole backstory behind why they're so upset isn't just because, wow, Jesus is eating with them. But the whole mindset of the Pharisees, if you understand the historical background and context, they thought contamination with non-Jewish people would prevent God coming and bringing his kingdom. Let me say that one more time, because you really need to let that sink in. The Pharisees that are upset thought that contamination with non-Jewish people like the tax collector man Matthew who was a Jew but then kind of was a traitor and went over to the Roman Empire and was getting taxes from them or all of these sinners most of them would have probably been outside unclean to the Jewish people the Pharisees they would have thought the kingdom would not come on the earth if the Jewish people were mixing with the wrong crowd so here Jesus is and they're like what are you doing what he's doing is saying the kingdom has come, and I'm showing you exactly what it looks like. And that's why he quotes Hosea, the passage that was read earlier in the service from Hosea 6. And the basic point here is him saying, I want your heart, not just your rituals and your religious routines. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Sacrifice meaning the sacrificial system of the Old Testament where they offer animals for sacrifices. 
There's a little parallelism if you go back and read it again in Hosea chapter 6. It says, for I desire the knowledge of God. And that's paralleling it with the idea of I desire the mercy or the loyalty and not just your rituals, your routines, and your sacrifices. So this is what Jesus is quoting from Hosea. And basically he's saying it's very easy for all of us who are Christians, who are followers of Jesus, who are religious, where we get into our routines and then we miss the whole point. So Embassy Church, if we are not welcoming to outsiders, whoever those outsiders might be or whoever you might put them in whatever category, you're missing the point. If we as a church don't see ourselves as sick and that we're all righteous and got it together, then we're missing the point. If we come to church and we size each other up and compare one another like a job interview, then we're missing the point. If any of you think you have it all together, you're missing the point. The whole reason why we're supposed to be here is that we would be a place that makes much of the great physician Jesus and that we, much like a regular medication that needs to come back again and again to deal with a sickness, so we need to come back week after week and come and receive what Jesus has for us, which is forgiveness, salvation, the gospel, good news for broken sinners. Or as Joseph Hart has eloquently written down in a beautiful poem, which is a hymn, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus is ready and stands to save you, full of pity and joined with power. He is able. He is able. He is willing, and so doubt no more. Come ye weary, heavy laden, You who are bruised and broken by the fall, if you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous. Not the righteous. Sinners is who Jesus came to call. That's our first point. The church is more like a hospital than a job interview. Secondly, let's see in this next story that the church is a lot more like a wedding, that Jesus is our bridegroom, and therefore we are his bride, and so it's a lot more like a celebration at a wedding than it is a funeral. Let's read the next story. The disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth in an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is then made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskin. If it is, the skins will burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskin and so then both are preserved. The question here is, not only is Jesus eating and drinking with a certain kind of people, sinners and tax collectors, but then there's a more broad question. Why is he eating and drinking at all? Shouldn't he be fasting like the rest of the Jews? It seems like he's constantly at a party. He's not mourning. What I mean by that mourning, like crying and he's He's not doing the normal days that would have remembered the tragic moments of their nation. So to help you understand, Jewish people had at least one day every year called the Day of the Atonement that they were required by the law to fast. But then as tradition happened and history went on, there would be some moments that happened that were very sad and sorrowful. And think of, in our day, September 11th, right? You always hear people around that day say, hey, we will not forget and we're going to remember Think of a, a nation going through a memory like that, a, a tragedy that happened, some sort of you know, defeat by your enemies. And during those times, they, 
instituted the practice of fasting and mourning and, and having a somber feel of let's afflict ourselves with not eating so we can remember the pain and the suffering that our people have gone through and we'll never forget what they went through. That's kind of what's going on. And when they look at Jesus, they're like, he's not doing any of that. What's his deal? Does he not care about our nation? And another thing that fasting would have been pointing to is the kingdom of, coming, kingdom of God coming and the Messiah being established. And so it's like, wait, do you, do you want the kingdom of God to come? Do you want the Messiah to come? And so John the Baptist and the other Jews, they fasted. And I think it's kind of like this, and there's other metaphors that we'll unpack for a moment, but them fasting was a lot like holding candles in the dark. The Jews thought of a better day when the sun was shining bright, but then the darkness came down. And so fasting was to remind them of those brighter days. And so they light their candles and they're reminding of those better days and they're looking forward to the days that would come. And the candle then would represent those days that would hopefully come. So it has a, a little bit of looking back and a hopeful looking forward. That's what fasting was about that they're referring to here. In their minds, the sun had set and there were dark days, but they had hope that those dark days would end. Jesus, on the other hand, is essentially going around and he's tearing open the curtains and saying, look, the sun has already risen. The light has come. There's no more need for the candles. Blow them out. He's telling them, put away all of those former practices of fasting and bask in the sunlight of a new day that has dawned. He is that new day. That's another way of explaining what he's talking about with the inability for the cloth and the wineskins. The new day that has come through Jesus' life, through his kingdom that he has established, it won't mix with the old day. It's foolish. It's weird, right, to imagine somebody in the middle of the noonday walking around with a candle. You'd be like, that's, that's, something's, something's not right, right? Some, something's wrong with that person. They, they don't get it. Blow the candle out. You don't need that light. Similarly, Jesus gives these two illustrations, or three actually. He says, you don't act like a funeral at a wedding, you go to a wedding and you don't see people crying. <gasps> Nobody's fasting. Weddings are known for having good food and feasting and celebrating and joy. And there's clapping and there's happiness. I mean, unless you're at a wedding where it's like someone else is getting married and you wanted to marry that person, then maybe in that case you might cry because you're devastated. Your long lost love is gone and forever taken. But that's the rare exception. And Jesus is saying, you all are acting like it's a funeral. I'm telling you, the wedding day has come. The bridegroom is here. So let's celebrate as if the wedding has started. Or secondly, it won't mix to not only just have funeral and wedding together. He then moves. You can't fix your coat with a patch that hasn't shrunk yet because when you wash it, then it shrinks. And then it's going to tear the hole and make it even worse. So new patch with old clothes don't go together. Or similarly, he says new wine and old wineskins. Most of you, I'm assuming, aren't super wine experts, but wine releases into, in, in, and gases, and so it expands the cloth-type uh, wineskin that it would have been inside. And so after a while, after a wineskin gets expanded as far as it possibly can, it can't expand anymore. So imagine that wine gets emptied out, and then you put new wine in, and then the expansion happens. Well, then it would pop, it burst. Think of like blowing up a balloon. That's basically what Jesus is talking about here. You blow up a balloon at a certain point, it's like don't put any more air in it. If you put any more air in it, it's just going to pop in your face. And that's what Jesus is saying. The whole point of all three of these different metaphors is to say it doesn't, it doesn't mix. They don't go together. 
From now on, everything would be different. Times are changing. A new covenant has being, is being established. A new way of worshiping God. And that's what the passage in Hebrews was all about that Ryan read for us. No longer will people say to one another, hey, know the Lord. For in fact, everybody who's a part of the church will know who the Lord is. And God's spirit will be poured out on everybody in a sense that even though the distribution of gifts may not be the exact same for every person, all people will have the presence of God in them through the Holy Spirit. That's far different from the old way. There's a new way, a new day has dawned. And so we as a church need to look at these lessons and think, A, number one, are we looking to the old covenant and the old ways as obligatory or as commands that we need to obey? And the answer should be no. So if any of you have cut your hair or trimmed your beard, you should not feel guilty about it because the Old Testament law says no trimming your hair or or trimming your beard or something. If you indulge in crab cakes or shrimp or shell food or anything of that kind in terms of the dietary laws, you're not under those laws anymore. That that's the old way. A new day has come in the new covenant of Jesus Christ. And furthermore, there's this other idea of a church that's full of joyful members feasting together around tables celebrating this new day that has come. Can you think of one of the biggest moments in your life worth celebrating? Was it your wedding day? Was it the birth of a child? Was it when you got a new job or a promotion? something good happened and you just wanted to celebrate with friends or family? That is what the church in this passage should be more like. Joyful feasting together knowing that a new day has dawned. It's already here now. It is no coincidence that again and again we encourage all of you to participate in regular meals in this church. Let me give you a few examples if you don't know them. Every single week at 10 a.m. before our weekly service, we have a breakfast time around tables so we can have a communal meal together, eat together, spend time around tables together, and like this morning, think about all the ways we're so thankful for what God's done in our lives. Then on fifth Sundays, so that would be the end of December, there's five Sundays in December, instead of doing that breakfast, we're going to meet after church for lunch. So we'll have lunch. Church service at 11, and then right after our service ends, we're all going to encourage you to go downstairs, we're going to have a big potluck meal, and we're going to share food together, and we're going to celebrate what God has done through Jesus Christ by taking the bread and the cup in the context of that meal. Then there's people that gather together during community groups on Tuesdays and Thursdays and hopefully many other days, and they have meals together in each other's homes, and they sit down and they break bread, and they celebrate what God's doing in their life, and they weep with those who weep, and they mourn with those who mourn, but then all of them bring hope and encouragement to those who are struggling and hurting and rejoice with those who rejoice. And then on top of all of that, I'm continually trying to encourage all of you to sign up for what we're calling Around the Table. And we started off strong and honestly, let's just be honest, in the last six months, this really hasn't gone so well. And so let me exhort you, this morning, Around the Table is a way for us to organize more and more fellowship happening spontaneously And my goal is that at least once or twice a month, there might be somebody saying, hey, I'll host somebody in my house. And anybody that wants to come, and that's a little scary, right? That's treating the church like a hospital, like, "Uh uh-oh, what if they come? Not them. But this is the whole point of around the table. You don't get to pick and choose who comes. You say, I'll sign up. I have five spots. I have two spots. I have three spots. And some of you might be thinking, and I know some of you are thinking this, 
but I don't have a big enough spot. If you've got one extra space and you've got a big enough spot. Like I, I mean this in dead sincerity. All of us need to be challenged, no matter what big or how big or how small your house is, to be more and more hospitable. This is a mark of every Christian in the New Testament when you study hospita- hospitality in the New Testament. So I want to really make this normal at Embassy. And hopefully you've seen that by the way we do weekly breakfast or lunch, whether it's community groups throughout the week or hopefully extra special occasions like around the table where once or twice a month you can say, hey, I've never really hung out with that person and they're hosting something. Well, I'm going to go over to their house. Why would we do these things? Why would we care about joyful feasting and celebration? Well, let's put the two images together. The first of Jesus being a doctor and us, the hospital, and the second being Jesus, the bridegroom, and us, the bride. What do you think it would be like if you knew that in your body you had some sort of disease or pain? Whether it be a chronic pain or a terminal illness. And then, one day, you found out there was a cure or an operation to fix that problem. Some of you have maybe experienced the joy of that. Others of you are longing and waiting for that day. But can you imagine, just for a moment, what that might be like? To think my life is going to end sooner rather than later because I have a terminal illness. And then, you hear breaking news, cancer has been cured. And not only has it been cured and made available, but you have access to it. And then imagine that you now then can start going to the doctor and start getting treatment for it. My friend, if you're Christian today, you live in the time of starting to receive the healing of the treatment, but it's not done. The cure has come. The operation was successful, but there's ongoing therapy that needs to happen afterwards. All of us in that sense are already begun the healing process. We believe that the gospel of Jesus, Jesus' arrival and coming, announces to us the cure for the greatest disease, our sin. And we were born with this disease, and all of us have this terminal illness of sin, and that because of Jesus, the great physician, we now can have joyful celebration that there's a cure. You can be healed. You don't have to look at death and think, oh no, the end of me. You can look at death and say, no, that's the new beginning, because on the other side is resurrection. How might that change the way you feel about pains and sufferings in the in-between time? Before there was a cure, the pain was probably all-consuming and identifying everything about your existence and your future and your hope or lack thereof. But after you found out about the cure, after you started to see some of the improvements of the medicine in your life, you're starting to realize, hey, even though I still have some pains and it's not fully healed yet, I look at that pain a whole lot more differently than I used to. That's the sort of announcement that's being made when Jesus says, listen, we don't need to act like there's a funeral going on. It's a wedding feast. You can celebrate. It doesn't mean everything's okay. It doesn't mean that everything's just cheery and that kind of like, happy-go-lucky. It's saying that even in the great pain and suffering in our life, you look at it completely differently because you know the cure has already come and it is coming slowly and eventually 
full healing and restoration will happen, not just to you as an individual, not just to us as a church, but the entire world. The down payment of the Holy Spirit is that first dosage of the medicine. And when you come back week after week, this joyful celebration, even though that we're sinners and that we're sick, man, every week you get to hear good news proclaimed of a Savior, of a doctor, of a physician who heals. We're talking about life and death. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that there is a cure The brokenness that you see in the news around you, the problems in your own family or even in your own heart, the guilt and shame that you feel with, there is a cure to that disease. It requires for you to first admit that you're sick and want to receive Jesus' help of healing. So let us, as we do now, turn to the Lord's Supper and be reminded that the bread in the cup is like another dosage you wanted to call it that way. And I don't mean that it has like healing power in it and like, hey, there's a little popping pills medicine. I just mean it's a symbol of the healing of the blood of Jesus. And that by faith, when we cling to Christ by faith and what his blood has accomplished for us on the cross, rising from the dead and defeating death and ascending to heaven to pour out the spirit and healing now on this earth. Every week when we gather, the church should be handing out the medicine that is the gospel. So we're going to do that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for sending your son Jesus. We thank you that Jesus came to die for our sins, to set us free from our illness, and to give us a new community of people that can help one another and encourage each other and sympathize with each other's weaknesses and sorrows, knowing all of us in this room are equally just as sick. Lord, I pray that you will, as a church, this community, this church would be full of humility. We would never go around thinking that we have it all together. I pray that you would strike down our pride and we would bow before the cross and realize that today, right now, even after this week, just these last seven days, we need the gospel again. We need Christ. We need forgiveness again. We have failed you again and again, and there still is sickness that remains. So we pray, God, would you humble us in those ways? And then would you lift us up? Would you not leave us down into the dirt, but would you pull our chin up and help us to see that the Savior has died and he has risen and he has conquered and that there is hope and that there is healing and it starts now. We don't have to wait for it later. We can begin receiving healing from Christ now. Would you give us faith? Would you grant us belief that none of us in this room are too far gone, too sick? Would you help us believe in our friends and family members that we know are very sick with sin and we've started to give up and stop telling them about Jesus and we've had fear of man issues and we've not really believed that you can save them? Give us fresh faith today. Remind us that your gospel is greater, it's wider, it's deeper, it's more powerful, and it heals anybody with any sickness. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.